0: The running boom of the 70s came during simpler, pre-internet times. A unique cast of characters riding that wave came of age. You never knew who would show up, and races became household names, attracting capacity fields year in and year out. Co-hosts Ron galulli John Gorman, and Grant Whitney, inspired by the first runners' reunion in 2019, speak with some of the characters of the era. Share their stories and where they are today. Whether you are a road warrior, harrier, track purist, or simply a fan, there's something for everyone in each installment of the Runner's Reunion Podcast. Good evening, rabid listeners of the Runner's Reunion Podcast. It's in December, and it's now under 32 degrees. It's the first time we've seen those temperatures in a while. But we wanna harken back to the boys of summer, a little bit of that springtime, summertime uh, time of year, both for running and because of the boys of summer, a little bit of baseball. Tonight, we're joined by probably one of the few runners in the country who had success at a significant level in both. Tonight, our guest is Paul McGovern. Excellent knuckleball pitcher who actually had a chance to go pro, but also a runner of renown in New England, both at college and certainly in uh, the years post college, both then and now as a master. Paul McGovern, thank you so much for joining us on the Runners Reunion podcast.
1: Thanks, guys. It's great to meet you, Grant. And I certainly know Boot and Ron. Over the years, and from competing against Ron back in the day, and still at it with Boot.
0: Well, and, and that's great because even knowing those guys, you decided to join us. So we're very grateful uh, for that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and we've lost a uh, boot for the moment, but that's okay. Uh, I'm sure he'll be back. Um, Paul, while we're at it, um, could you begin to get a bit, get us started a little bit here? Um, I'm wondering if. Um, you, you know, how you came to running, since that's really why you're here, but we, we, we're not going to forget the baseball uh, part, because of course, that's really important. But tell us a
1: little bit about your childhood, and tell us a little bit how you uh, actually got involved with sport generally. Yes, um, I, I was probably uh, considered a, a wiry kid, and someone who always liked to be on the go, and I started out at a parochial school, and lasted six weeks. Uh, they ended up tossing me out, basically. uh, I was considered an instigator and got in a lot of trouble there. And my mother used this line for many years. She had to go meet with the mother superior and asked about the problems I had and all. And uh, the mother superior said, well, Mrs. McGovern, someday the light will dawn. So my sisters still use that whenever I do anything (laughs) that's uh, considered knuckleheadish. And uh, the light has dawned, I think. And I ended up at the public school and did well there and um, always loved to run around and chase kids. And of course, uh, baseball was the, the thing to do in Lynn growing up, uh, it was very competitive. And our neighborhood was kind of like a bunch of the Little Rascals, uh, the Sandlot movie. We had some great ball players. And one of my friends, Buzz Beatty, who helped me perfect the knuckleball, took a lot of battle scars from my pitching days he ended up getting drafted by the Cubs and his son, Tyler, is now pitching for the Pittsburgh Pirates. He was drafted number one by the, the Giants, went to Villanova because Buzz suggested he stay in college, and uh, pitched the Villanova, uh, not Villanova, Vanderbilt to the World Series, and then from uh, there got drafted number one again by San Francisco. So we had a very competitive neighbor neighborhood. One of our neighbors went to UMaine on the track scholarship and – her daughter ended up becoming a great pentathlete at u wisconsin mm-hmm. so just the neighborhood was always competing we had boxing matches where we took a beating on each other <laughs> but baseball was king so i ended well, up playing baseball right through uh high school didn't um uh, didn't do so well as far as high school i didn't make the varsity as a 10th grader made the jb team as a, a junior and went 4-0 in my pitching then made it to varsity and never saw an inning. And uh, I said, I'm going to show that coach. And uh, lo and behold, when I found out he could play both in college, it worked out well.
0: Well, well you, you've, you've gone through, uh, I think, your, your early years through middle school and high school. So I want to circle back just a little bit. But that's fascinating. I, I'm detecting, gentlemen, a theme here. It, it seems like so many uh, of our guests to this point have really come from an atmosphere of a different time, in the sense that we've heard time and time again now this notion of being very active. You know, we, we're allowed to do whatever we want to do. We're running around. We're playing sports. We're I'm not sure boxing. I think that's the first time we've heard about boxing. So I, I'm not sure. I want, I want to get into that much uh, into that one too much, Paul. But uh, but it sounds like really active.
2: <laughs> yeah it looks like john uh, john you got a question that area of lynn you grew up in the neighborhood um is that the same neighborhood tony c grew up in yes uh yeah he, same he school? Was, well yeah tony was uh more from swanski but he went oh, to st mary's cool. that's yeah. Cool. yeah 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 but, but he was the school he went to in lynn
1: yes st mary's was. But, yeah okay yeah. okay Okay. I grew, yeah. up, grew up near Rico Petroselli. He was close by our neighborhood and very he, close he grew to up
2: in a... Oh, really? I didn't know he was from, from
1: Massachusetts. Okay. Yeah, well, I'm not sure where he grew up, but he lived uh, right near Freddie
2: Doyle. In Lake. Oh, okay. Yeah, Freddie. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. Well, so
0: you had no choice, Paul. It sounds like you had to play baseball. I mean, it would be kind of, you know, it would really not work out very well for your folks. You would you, not only would you get thrown out of parochial school, you'd probably get thrown out of public schools, too.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: So where did where did the running, you know, so baseball sounded like a little bit of um, um Maybe let's call it late blooming. Maybe that's wrong, but it, it sounds similar to that. Where, where did the running piece kind of fit in? How did that get started?
1: Yeah, that, uh, it worked out um, back when I was graduating uh, as a senior there at Lynn English High School. I wasn't even going to go to college. I, my dad was a city worker. I was going to take the firefighter's exam and then hopefully become a firefighter. And one of my friends, I don't know if you guys know, John Childs. He went to Bishop Fenwick. He was a real good runner, a state champ in the mile. John, I became friendly with. He took me to a track meet at Tufts University where U Lowell was running, Fitchburg State, Tufts, maybe another school. And I ended up meeting the Fitchburg State coach. And he really took an interest in me and uh, saw that I did well in a state meet. But my teammate, uh, Philo Pappas, tremendous runner, he was a state champ. So I didn't get the, the recognition, which kind of I kind of flew under the radar, which worked out well for me. I had Philo, to, he was a 422-miler. He would do battle with Bobby Goss from Chelsea, and they had some great battles. So it worked out. Uh, Coach Sheehan, you know, said, come on, give it a try. And my father said, why don't you try college? So mm-hmm. I went there as a freshman, and uh, as it turned out, I ended up the second man on the team, the cross-country team. And then trying out for baseball, played baseball, and i delighted that I could do both at the same time. I don't think that's legal now.
0: Well, it, 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 now, let me just make sure I want to catch up on one thing, Paul. So did you start running competitively in high school, junior high, or was it later in high school? What, in- oh, yes,
1: yeah. Sorry about that. Uh, 11th grade, my dad said, 11th grade. Okay. why don't you do some, pick another sport to get your legs in shape for baseball, try cross country. And yeah. so I asked the cross country coach, it was late October if I if he'd mind if I joined the team and trained with them to get my legs in shape for baseball. He said, sure, we have a race up Lynn Woods tomorrow. I'll put you in the JV. So I hopped in the JV race the next day, not knowing how to pace myself at Lynn Woods, sprinted out then waited for the other guys, sprinted again, did a series of sprints, <laughs> wait for the others, I came out of the woods back on the main trail, and the varsity guy said, straight ahead, and I ended up winning the JV race. The next week, they put me in the varsity, which was their last race of the season, and I tied for first with six teammates. We wanted to rub it in on our crosstown rivals, and they had we had a strong enough team, and I stayed with the guys. And a bunch of them, we, I have a great photo, a bunch of them have cigars in their mouth, which is kind of rubbing salt in the wound, like a red hour back. But we, uh, I fell in love with the sport and then I uh, did indoor track. And to my great fortune, Freddie Doyle, who was an accomplished runner for Greater Boston Track Club, and he ended up, he's not much older than me, but he ended up becoming our coach for indoor track. He was the distance running coach. So he was really my first coach, and to this day he's been a great friend and he's a mentor. Uh, he really helps me. I officiate track meets now with him, and it, it works out great. I still get to see him.
0: But that's that's a great story. Now help me understand your father's logic, though, Paul. This is this is new to me. What did your dad convey to you that said running would help your legs? I mean, was he talking really the endurance piece, or was he literally talking leg strength? you think you know
1: i think he just wanted me to do stay active because okay. growing up in my family they, they, a lot of our the mcgoverns were pretty wild uh not my immediate family so much uh, there is some of that but um we have a history of liking our beers and you know letting loose so uh, i think he was afraid that i might wander Mm -hmm. Uh, because I had some cousins that ended up with drug and alcohol problems and ended up passing due Mm -hmm. to that. So I I think that was a a concern for him. And plus, I think with my I love to be active. My my wife would probably say I'm still hyperactive or have attention deficit disorder. Running was a perfect sport for me to blow Mm -hmm. off steam. Okay, okay. because it, it, it was it the
0: focus so much or was it just the fact that the activity Do you think is, you know, was, over a more extended period of time than say throwing a pitch or, you know, throwing a punch for that matter.
1: Yes. Yeah. I I think uh, the prolonged exercise really helped calm me down. Okay. And to this day too, it's a very calming thing.
0: So if, if as we pick up the thread, then it sounds like you know, that's a marvelous story, by the way, you go, you run one race in JV as an 11th grader. Next thing you know, you're on the varsity. Next thing you know, you've got a cigar in your mouth because you've beaten across Tom rivals. You, you found a lifelong mentor over that, um, you know, indoor season. Did you, uh, how
1: did outdoor go as you then
0: started to realize that you had something uh, well, I,
1: I got a lot of pressure from the coach and the teammates that I should give up baseball,
0: mm, okay. to go to
1: outdoor track. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I just didn't have it in my hat. My number one love was the baseball. Okay, so I stuck it out, and despite not playing that senior year, I I think it helped drive me even further. That mm-hmm. uh, I to, I look back and I was the only player that didn't get one single inning, despite how you know that we might have been blowing out a team so i i think the manager the coach was someone he didn't care for one of my neighbors i really think this was the case one of my neighbors who was a great athlete in his day an older man helped me perfect my pitching Mm -hmm. and they both served on the alcohol beverage commission together and they always did battle and my neighbor liked to brag about me and my knuckleballing and so i don't think this coach had anything it didn't even care to see me go in there but many times in intra-squad games I would shut down our varsity and so I was very frustrated so I made it work for me that summer I had a tremendous summer pitching Uh, I think I ended up nine and two in a a senior Babe Ruth league I'm in this book Uh, it's a Babe Ruth book they publish every year it's a it's in the hall of fame it supposedly goes in the hall of fame Babe Ruth athletes of the year so I ended up taking it and making a positive out of it.
0: So it, it now it obviously was okay at the time to to do two spring sports. I mean, high school wise, MI, MIAA, right? You were okay. You could be on the oh, track no, team. And- uh,
1: we, I don't think we could do it in the oh. M I A A. We could do it in college.
0: Okay. Oh, I see. So you so you literally sat on the bench, yeah, for baseball, and did and and basically uh, let that senior outdoor season go by.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Did nothing. Yeah. Interesting. Oh,
3: Ron's got a question. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, transitioning to college from my experience, when I worked at Brandeis many, many years ago, the baseball team was out on the field at one, one 30 in the afternoon until six at night. How the heck did you manage to do two sports that demanded a lot of time in college? And, you know, the, the story of the high school, Coach, you know, it's amazing your persistence to stay with the support despite uh, some setbacks there.
1: Yeah, I was confident in my skills as a pitcher. And so I just wanted to take it as far as I could. And like any young kid, you dream of making the pros someday. So that, that was still my goal. I wanted just to have the opportunity to make that. But it was a real juggling act, Ron, as you mentioned. Uh, long practices, baseball, and then I had to be very disciplined to go out for that run after long practices, despite how much, uh, how tired my legs were from pitching and we did weight training and all all the other training that took place as far as baseball went. Um, I was very disciplined and I had to be because if I'm gonna compete, even in division three track and field, I wanted to be competing against the better guys. So I had to do my homework and really learn how to balance academics and sport.
0: So, Paul, help help us with this. So, you you know, instead of going the firefighter exam route, you're persuaded by the then coach um, uh, to give Fitchburg State a try, and you do. And and you knew you could do both. How describe for us if you would? You know, I, I, I've got two kids uh, that are in college, one just starting that's a big transition in and of itself. You're transitioning to college with not just one sport, but two. And, and with some degree of intersection and, and overlap, how did you juggle the uh, adjustments say in the fall indoors and outdoors on the running side with the baseball and the off season, preseason and all of that?
1: Yes. Well, for one thing, uh, The track coach, Coach Sheehan, certainly knew who I was running-wise. The baseball coach had no idea who this McGovern kid is. So I had to really prove myself in the fall, and just I just wanted to be given the chance. And so when I got on the mound, uh, I carried over what I did in the summer and had real a really good fall. And they saw I could pitch, and uh, that set me up for the spring. And I was fortunate that. Both coaches throughout my career, the baseball coach, we had a, a change a couple times where they had new coaches, but they were very cooperative. If there was a big track meet I had to run on the weekend, a conference championship or whatever, then the baseball coach would make sure I pitched during the midweek. And then I get to run the big track meets on the weekend. So there was, it was back and forth. And it did come to a head later on where I, we had a big game and also a big meet down in my senior year. Uh,
2: John, you, it looks like you wanted to weigh in here. Yeah, so, so Paul, what, when you know you talk about, uh, by the way, uh, it's funny how your family called you a knucklehead and then you end up being a knucklehead, knuckleballer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So kind of natural segue. So, yes. <laughs> so anyway, when, when did you feel like you, I mean, knuckleball is probably one of the hardest pitches to throw, right? I mean, not yes. a lot of people can do it. All right. So when did you feel like your it was getting tricky, like it was floating, like it was it was moving? And I mean, you, you did it. You did. The, you do the knuckle, knuckleball you, in high school, you know, freshman college. When did it really start getting better and better? And when did you feel like, OK, now I can do this?
1: Yes. Well, I, I knew uh, my weakness was uh, what they all look for in baseball is a good fastball. And my highest clocking was an 82 miles per hour. That's not, just not going to cut it uh, as you move up. So I knew I had to come up with some other pitch. And my neighbor there that, that I talked about, he was a softball player and he, he threw a knuckler. So I was fascinated watching the ball do all sorts of dips. And also with the baseball, I constantly worked on my grip and I would hold the ball in my hand and just toss it up in my bedroom to get it to not spin. And then uh, I ended up short distances with my neighbor, Buzz Beatty, who ended up at the Cubs and practicing just short distances, getting it to the point it didn't spin. And then I go to the regular distance and I got to the point I could find the right release point and I could throw it from a sidearm slot or overhand slot three quarters and get it to not spin. Then you have to mother nature plays a role too uh, with the knuckleball no spin you're hoping the wind uh, the currents catch the seams so it's best if the wind current is at your face or from the side because it makes it it moves it all over if there's a wind behind your back it tends to carry it straight in and it's like a looks like a nice beach ball for the batter to hit and so you need the the mother nature to cooperate also so
0: that's I'm, interesting I am, yeah yeah, I'm hearing a lot of discipline, um, which I imagine or maybe Paul tell us was transferable. I mean, I guess I wouldn't have thought I, I think of baseball and pitching as more of a quick reaction thing. But you're describing a very long, thought out, persistence practice of, you know, throwing the ball up, lying on your bed and really uh, incrementally working on, let's call it a craft. Uh, to get that ball to do what you wanted it to do. Does that seem, do you think that that transferred over into your running in the same, in in a similar way?
1: Yeah, uh, definitely. There are some similarities. I know like um, to be a good starting pitcher, you need some endurance because those games are two plus hours. And as a distance runner, marathons are over two hours and you have to be able to focus for great lengths of time. The difference is that with baseball, I had to do a lot, of more, a lot more analyzing, watching where a batter stands, his swing. And I get the feel for what type of pitch they like, what they're looking for. And it's a lot of guessing, guesswork, but educated guessing, just by looking at stances and tendencies that the hitter has. And then you get the break in between innings. You, you shut them down, three outs. You get to go on the bench. And then take a look at who's coming up next. Did you see him earlier in innings? And what did they tend to do? So I had a good memory uh, for things like that. And I could, it did a lot of visualization too. Uh, I pictured the ball moving certain ways and I pictured targets. I could get in my mind's eye where I wanted that ball to go and through muscle memory and all You do it enough times and you almost can will it to go to spots. And if you lose concentration, it's not going to go in the spot you want it to. And it could likely end outside the park.
0: (laughs) I want to come back to that. But but you've already kind of teased a a topic which I know we all wanted uh, you to, to talk about. You had mentioned, and I think I really do think it's kind of marvelous that even at that time, yes, it was Division Three, but that you had that really that joint cooperation between the baseball manager and and then the track coach, except for a few significant meets. Now, um, not to I'm going to let you toot your own horn because I think you well deserve it, but it, it sounds like could you describe one of the more memorable weekends in, in your uh, athletic career?
1: Because that's one. I know our listeners are going to want to hear more about. Oh, yeah. That's a, a weekend that my senior year, 1982, it it all came to a head. We had a, a big conference championship, and we were always doing battle with Westfield State and Fitchburg State. We had a we were kind of a, a powerhouse uh, in track and field. That was the sport on campus because we had guys that would place D1 New England, hammer throwers, and we had Dave worth a tremendous sprinter who had a New England record for the 100 and 200, D1, 2, and 3, and made a Pan Am team. So, uh, one particular weekend, we were playing North Adams in baseball for a, a, they were the best in the conference, and I was due to start the second game of a doubleheader. But our conference championship was down below on the track, and the coach had me in the 10K which they always run that during the hammer throw event. It's not one that people are going to watch a 10K on the track, 25 laps. So I had the 10K, and he said, look, uh, I'm going to need you in the steeple chase also. And that's not long after the 10K, but I ended up doing what I had to in the 10K. k ended up coming in first. I gathered myself, and I ended up having a great battle, and I came in first in the steeple. So I'm hanging around, and the meat was very tight. And Coach Sheehan said, Gov, my nickname was Governor, Gov, we're going to need you in the 5K. Meantime, the baseball team, some of the guys are coming down, Gov, you're starting. The coach needs you up there. And it was a real dilemma. Like, I I didn't want to let the track team down, but I wasn't going to do that. I said, I have to run the, the race, start someone else. So as it turned out, I ran the 5K and ended up first place in another good battle. I did not want to give in, and I ended up coming in first. And then um, I remember we ended up winning the meet, and the coach Ian said, Gov, you have to stay. We're going to present the trophy. I'll do it right away. Then you can get up to your baseball game. Well, I go in the the shed where they keep all the, the hurdles and stuff, and I put on my baseball uniform, and then all the teams are gathered around for the series I people said, what's he going to a Halloween party or whatever. And off I went, uh, we were getting shelled, uh, up above the first inning the uh, pitcher let up a bunch of runs. I ended up going in for relief and I pitched the whole rest of the way, didn't give up a run, completely shut them down. And then the next day I ended up going in for relief in two games. And, uh, I have to look at the details. I on my uh, profile, it says I got the wins in both games. It might have worked out that way. It were close battles. I went in for short relief, and we ended up winning the games. But that was a, a career highlight. Um, I think that night after running those races and pitching, I might have had a couple beers at a keg party and passed out. But <laughs> wow. that was my claim to fame there that senior year.
0: Okay, let's let's just stop and, and take stock of this folks just for a minute, 10,000 meters plus 3,000 meters, which is not, you know, even if it was flat, that'd be something, but we're talking steeplechase. Let's not forget. So you got a few water jumps in there, plus another five. By my math, that's 18,000 meters, okay? And how much time would you estimate between dashing into the shed, changing into your your uniform and then getting up to to the field saying you're coming in the second inning. How much time between you finishing and then literally moving and adjusting to an entirely different sport?
1: Oh, it was probably within the half hour. I had to be right up on that field. That's why, thankfully, Coach Sheehan rushed through the the championship party and atmosphere that we went through, and I, I got to head right up there to the field, and thankfully, the field was very close by.
0: Wow. Ron, jump on in, please.
3: Paul, I do recall, because I was in we graduated the same year in college. Um, somehow I had heard about, and you know, for our listeners, this is pre-internet days, but somehow I heard about that exploit uh where you ran three races, won three races, and also pitched baseball games uh while I was in college. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, you had some really fast times in 1981, I think 1435, 3021. Those are NCAA All-American worthy times back in the day. Did you ever make it to the NCAs? Or I,
1: I did qualify, uh, Ron, and I did go out there. But by the time I got to those NCAA meets, I was cooked. And uh, That's what I thought. <laughs> I never really performed well at the NCAAs, the couple chances that I had to go there. But again, it served me well because I, I wanted to take my running as far as I could as well as the baseball and I was fortunate with the the baseball right out of college I got an open invite to a trial with the Montreal Expos down in Daytona Beach complex and I got to go down and live in West Palm Beach where I had an elderly aunt and I went up there for the the tryout and once again what what cost me is my lack of a fastball. It's very objective. It, it, they have the radar guns on you. I, I didn't really get to show my knuckleball. And, but I was I was happy I got it to that point to at least get a tryout.
2: John, looks like you wanted to jump in. So uh, I hate to jump into it you know, before Grant brings it up. But so actually I actually have two questions. Did you start learning French when Montreal graduated? <laughs> Did you take up any, just Just in case, a little French. No, <laughs> no, no, we? no. We? No, okay. So question, second question. So we we'll jump in a little bit. So talk about your relationship with uh, Fernando Braz. I don't know if Grant knows him at all, but um, when I think of you, I don't know. I, I think of Fernando and your friendship and you guys are like brothers. Yes. You know, what happened there was, uh, I don't think
1: they still do it, but Back when Ron and I ran, uh, if you were a Division III athlete and you ran a fast enough time to qualify for the All-New Englands, you could go to the All-New Englands. So one particular year, I ran fast enough, I think it was at 3021, and I got to go compete against the D1 guys at Boston College, where Fernando went to college. And Fernando grew up in Peabody, right next to Lynn. And my dad and I would always read about Fernando. He was... He had one of the faster times in the country for he did a 10 K as a high schooler and always read about him. And lo and behold, I got to race him in the 10 K and we met each other that day. And uh, we chatted and I said, "Uh, maybe in the summer we can get together and train. So from that point on he ended up second to a kid from Vermont and I ended up fourth in that race. We bonded really well. And then, trained uh started training in the summer uh it really it worked out well that particular summer that summer might have been going into my senior year i think that's what it was i had run he was a, maybe a freshman uh, my i'm not too good with the time frames but uh that might have been the case but he became a lifelong friend at that mm-hmm. point hall of famer of bc Yes, I went to that ceremony when he got inducted. You guys brought back, I had a flashback. I mentioned uh, at Pittsburgh State, we had an outstanding team of hammer throws and all. And I was so proud of my fitness level freshman year. We got to run a a, a two mile down at Coast Guard Academy. And my friend, my teammate, Steve Jackson and I, we thought we were in the greatest shape coming off across cross country. And our first race was going to be the two mile at Coast Guard. Well, the Coast Guard coach met up with another coach who said, would you mind if my runner hops in the race with you, the guys here? And it was a woman. So we're racing, and then I end up at battling this woman right to the end, and she blew, blew me off the track, the home stretch. And the hammer throwers were all over our case calling us skinny, insignificant humans, letting a woman beat us. But the woman ended up, it was Jan Merrill, a runner from Connecticut. Oh, yeah. And she dusted us. But we ended up being tagged as skinny, insignificant humans who you need on your track team to get some points here and there. So the whole, I still use that term now with the the skinny distance runners. But those uh, hammer throwers are brutal.
0: Well, Paul, I wish I could still be a skinny, insignificant <laughs> distance runner. <'cause... laughs> so... But the the other remarkable piece of your career, Paul, is that you know some of us, you know, after college, you you maybe go for one or two more years, or maybe a little bit longer. But you you know basically your post collegiate career is 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 as noteworthy, if not more so, than than the days at Fitchburg State. Can you help us navigate? Post-disappointment, realizing that you wouldn't have to learn French because you weren't going to have that chance to go to to Montreal. And then how you kind of uh, channeled um, maybe disappointment. Tell tell us a little bit about your mindset, let's say, coming out of West Palm Beach.
1: Yeah. So uh, after that trial, which was early, probably in February or March, I stuck around and I played in a, a very competitive league from Hollywood, which is just north of Miami up to the Palm beaches, and I did well enough, but a lot, a lot of guys were in that league. It was like a Southeast Coastal League, and they were trying to make it to the pros or at least be given another opportunity. I exhausted my, my chance, that I was happy, content, and then I decided I'd start running a little more, get back into the running. And I ended up popping in a 10-mile race. I was working as a busboy over in Palm Beach, had plenty of time to run. I was living at my aunt, elderly aunt's house. I hopped in a race where I did quite well in a 10-miler, and there happened to be a Reebok rep who was from New England. He ran, He was a runner. His name was Paul Griffo. I think he was from Rhode Island. He went to Providence College, and Paul was a Reebok rep down there. And he saw me, and we got chatting, and he said, hey, I see you don't have any name brand would you like to run for Reebok? I said, well, I'm I'm from Massachusetts. He goes, well, how long are you going to be here? I said, well, to the fall probably. He goes, good enough for me. Can you run a couple races? So he gave me all the Reebok gear, uh, shoes, asked what size, got me the, the size I needed. I thought, this is fantastic. I'm getting free shoes and a uniform. And then when I finished down there, when I came back here, Jack McDonald, was the coach at BC and he was the Reebok coach. So I ended up getting to do workouts at Boston college and then Reebok kind of broke up and I ended up on the Saucony team. Dave McGilbrey was the rep there. And then my friend, Paul Hammond was on the team. They had Rod Dixon. They had a, a big club. So I got to run for Saucony and I remember my professor in college, Dr. Lee Cunningham, and his partner, uh, Marty Sabula, a, a Finnish guy, they did work with Dr. Dario Harara from down in Providence, testing all the Irish runners. And Dr. Cunningham, it was cutting edge stuff. And I ended up getting, being the beneficiary of the testing also. And Marty Sabula, my coach at the time, he could base a lot of my training on the scientific data that they, they got from the treadmill test. And I remember getting to see John Tracy, who me as a baseball player, that was that was like meeting Nolan Ryan as a, a pitcher or one of the great stars. Seeing John Tracy, I still have a picture of my arm around John Tracy it was fantastic. And a lot of my training was very similar, but at a lesser level, that they were doing the Irish guys. And my coach, Marty Sabula, he was a ended up a dean at Johnson and Wales. And he was always talking with Pete Fissinger and Nick O'Shea, I think a, another Irish runner down there. And I got good advice. And then he said, "Gub, if you want to start really getting serious with this, you've got to hook up with Gil Hooley, Fissinger, uh, Kevin Ryan down in Newton. Get your ass down there. And I remember going to the Ron and Boots house and that's where I think I first met Boot. And I knew yes, doing, doing the long run with Radcliffe and company, I knew what it took to be serious and get to the next level with those guys. I remember getting home and I think I collapsed. Uh, you used to, I used, to, knew- used to laugh about how
2: much spaghetti I used to eat. Hey, oh hey, yeah, you're gonna have a plate of spaghetti after that? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think you were hung over having some that spaghetti. really? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs>
3: But, I, I, but really, I do remember
2: the first time you walked in the kitchen as Paul McGovern, you know, good runner. Bro. I still remember the, to this day. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. I knew, knew what it took at that point and to get to the level and bring my running as far as I could, like I did with the baseball. So,
0: Paul, Paul help it, help me uh, triangulate here a little bit. So you're finishing up with the, the baseball down in Florida, it's, let's call it 83 ish, thereabouts yes and, and you're going through a bunch of transitions as you move to the boston area and kind of navigate a, a variety of different worlds um the reebok world the saucony world um what what years are we talking about here is this
1: 83 still 84 85 yeah. where, where are we roughly i think we're 83 and going into 84 and then i had like a a breakthrough race i remember okay. it was this Miller light series uh, up in Newburyport and you had to run a fast time to get there for the final and they had the final and I remember I ran 23-29 and I came in like eighth place or so. Bruce Pickford won and my friend Paul Gorman from Swanskid, they both went under 23 and there was Wally Collins and Paul Hammond and Larry mm-hmm. That just a tremendous field of runners and then what's a guy have to do to, to win a race? I mean, running 23-29, my personal best by far. And then so I, I kept working at it. And then another, the next year, I got in better shape. And the probably the biggest breakthrough that I made a name for myself was the Newberry Port Yankee Homecoming. And in 85, that was my first time running it. And I knew the field is loaded. And I get a lot of mental training as well as physical. So early in the season, the bulk of my training is physical. I need to build the base and all. And it's probably 90% physical, 10% mental. And as I move along, it goes to 50-50. And then as I get to the big races, my homework's been done physically. The mental piece now is 90% and the physical's 10 And I really learned to visualize, breathing techniques. I was locked in. In this race, we went through, I remember Mark Kimball and I, we went through it like under 4.30 for the first mile, and I didn't panic. And then a group, the guys started falling off. And I remember on the lead truck, a guy, I think it was Larry Bothlow, yelling out, probably after three miles, I'm I'm building a lead, who are you? (laughs) <laughs> what's your number? What what's your name? And, and I remember going through at five miles. I went through at 2340 something. And Whoa. I went through 10K at 29. And these are my personal best, I'm like thinking, but I was so locked in. My mind went when I was when I was competing and had really had the mental piece together. I could uh, block things out. In that race, I always remember, I wish I could mimic this. I, it happened a couple of times where I felt like I was, I'll sound nuts here, but I felt like I was having an out-of-body experience.
0: Yeah, not I could not see, nuts at all. At
1: yeah, all. I, I could see the competition dropping off. Mm-hmm. And I this guy is beside me, he's breathing heavy. Make a move now. Like I knew when to move. And pretty soon I was running by myself and not feeling a pain in the world. I could visualize sometimes in the middle of a race, picture myself running along the beach or up Lynn Woods. I could take my mind elsewhere. And I really worked at that and trained well with the mental piece.
0: Now, now, okay, so help me with this. because This is what fascinates me. And I was initially thinking we'd go at it from the, you know, how is it different or the same from prepping for pitching? But sports psychology at the time was still kind of infant. You know, it was kind of an infant discipline. How did yes. you, did you read about it? How did you, how did this concept kind of come to your
1: consciousness, I guess, uh, for lack I remember, of time. I remember Coach Mahdi, Sabula, he was like into the mental piece too. He was a okay. scientist and you know, all, and he he wanted me to learn relaxation techniques. So he had, now it's called a pulse oximeter, I right? I had like a pulse meter. It was a German instrument he let me have. And at night, I would work on deep breathing exercises and work on getting my pulse rate down. And I could visibly see with the breathing techniques, I had feedback looking at the numbers. I could see my heart rate going from fifties, low fifties, then get it under 50. And I could get my heart uh, resting heart rate down like 45, 46 beats per minute through this breathing technique. So I knew there was a lot to it. And then, he worked on like visualizing uh, race courses and um, I could really get those uh, moments down where I could totally relax, picture, uh, and I use it to this day, like I could visualize it. I kind of a visual learner. When I had to learn all my muscles, I could picture attachments. I made Play-Doh uh, muscles and attached it to bony landmarks on the skeleton. So I have a real good mind's eye visualizing when i'm working doing massage therapy on patients i can picture doing bending their knee joint and their muscles and and transferring my mental piece to what i'm mm-hmm. working on on that particular patient yeah and uh, the visualization really helped the relaxation technique so it piqued my interest and i took it from there so i'd say coach marty Okay. brought it to light. And a lot of it I was doing automatically, I think, as a pitcher back in the day. Okay. I pitched it, so I I kind of was training without even knowing it.
0: One question then, John, I'll I'll, I'll rope you back in. So it, would it be fair to say, Paul, that in that day you were in the zone, that Yankee Newberry Port race? I mean, you, you had probably run that race a million times in your head. Would that be a fair assessment of kind of what you
1: felt? Yes, and I ran with no fear. I, I ran confident, and I ended up breaking the course record by a significant amount, I believe. I was then 48-23, and uh, I hadn't approached anything like that. And uh, from there, I, I had in my head, like, someday I want to qualify for the Olympic trials. So it, it prompted me to continue to work hard and, and move on from there. hmm and I runners are a great group I, I it's just a fantastic camaraderie amongst runners they we kind of pull for each other and there's a lot of wackos too in the sport uh, what we president company
0: excluded <laughs> what, what where are we going
1: here john <laughs> <we> going? What, <laughs>
2: john you wanted to get in here so so uh well i'm asking this uh, kind of as a fan too is um what years did you win Newburyport? and, and you already answered my, one of my questions was what was, is it, which is still the cost record. It uh, was it a really hot night that you, know, you set the record, which makes it that much more amazing. Yes. Yeah. That was a scorching
1: night. I was looking at an old article. I think it was in the nineties again, that, that, and humidity. And I used to like the heat. I, I don't tolerate it as well as I used to now that I'm older, but um, I ended up winning it four times. It was a, there was another time I was very fit to run it. And I, I always get to races early, got to the race early, and I missed the start. I thought I thought the 5K was going off for some reason, and it was but actually- I changed the start. <laughs> I was at
2: that race. I think they changed the start time. That,
1: that might have been it. There, there was yeah.
2: something that twi- yeah, was twisted. A lot, of and were, a, lot of, a lot of people were late. Yeah. yeah. So. But, uh,
1: yeah, the sport, I, I met so many great people, and the, the coaches, like having the- Coach McDonald. And then when Saucony broke up, uh, they went to more like a triathlon-type team. Uh, I ended up, Freddie Doyle was with Nike Boston. And so I ended up on board with Nike Boston and had the good fortune of having Norm Levine, a Brandeis legend, as our coach. And he was great to, to work with, a lot of fun. And then after Norm, there was Bob Seventy, who was fantastic. Just a great group. And I remember Norm Levine, the last time I had seen him, was in college at a urinal at the Dartmouth Relays. I remember Coach Levine was up against the urinal. I went in there to relieve myself quickly. And all of a sudden, Coach is hanging on the urinal, making a noise like I had never heard. (laughs) And I'm there, Coach, are you all right? He said... Don't worry, Gov. I'm just passing a stone. So I ended up seeing what he meant by the stone. I went to his office one day. He had uh, kidney stones that he kept in jars. They were like trophies
2: in his office.
3: It was fantastic. Norm oh. was a legend. Yeah. Well, I'm, <laughs> well, not yeah.
2: I'm not, I'm not lying. Tommy Ratcliffe went through the same thing. Oh, he the did? your experience with Norm. Yeah. yeah.
3: yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. So he told us that story one time. I can't believe
3: did Norm offer you a Winston while you were talking to him there?
2: Yeah, <laughs> I know. After passing the
1: scone, light up a cigarette.
3: Yeah, no, he oh. he was he was a great a great coach oh. and uh, coached a lot of good runners at Brandeis. So that's wow, uh, it's a great. So,
0: uh, so Paul, it, it, it's this has been a fascinating conversation, but we we want to make sure we get to your Olympic aspirations, and and so help us understand as you've navigated distance now, you've moved up from steeple to five k to ten k. Now you're ten milers. Uh, tell us how it, it 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 then shaped. How did the arc continue? Um, do, do we have a marathon in your future at that time? Was
1: that was that the uh, the end game? Do you think? Yes, uh, my. My first marathon, I said, all right, I want to give this marathon a try. So 1986 was my my first marathon where I really tried to race it. And leading into it, you had to qualify with a, a faster time. And I forget, was it 250 boot at the time? Oh, yeah,
2: but Boston was 250 or under yeah. Yeah.
1: open mail. So yeah. I had won a trip to Bermuda, uh that winter before boston and i remember mark kimball was on the same trip and one of the culinary girls and all and i went to the trip and i ran just hard enough to qualify i ran like in a floral shirt and all this they were questioning whether i cheated uh if i really ran the race because i looked pretty fresh at the time 250 wasn't bad and uh it was comfortable enough for me so i qualified and then i was fortunate that dave mcgillbree gave me a high enough number. I got to hang out in the church basement. I was number 76. And my training went really well. And my coach, Marty Sabula, at the time said, I don't care what you do with this Boston Marathon. You're going to run with Bobby Doyle. And I had heard of Bobby Doyle. Didn't really know know him, but knew of him. And so I met him at the, the race. And Bobby said, yeah, just stick with me. Coach said. just hang in there. And I I had the good fortune. Of he, he was a big help. I ran the, the marathon. So many times I was tempted to go. Bobby would say, hold up. See that group of Japanese runners? We're going to see them at mile 13 or 14. Sure enough, anyone that went by us, we ended up passing kind of where Bobby said we'd pass them. And mm-hmm. lo and behold, I ended up uh, top 20 that year. Got pri- It was the first year they offered prize money. Rob DiCostello D- won. Mm-hmm. I ended up running 222 and came in 22nd place. And the only guy that passed me was Bobby Doyle. Wow. We passed everyone else. And so then I had a love for the marathon. And then I thought I'd try to qualify in 88. And I trained hard for 88 and Fernando And I worked together and we went to the Dublin City Marathon. And I remember making sure, stay hydrated, guys, stay hydrated. And I ended up having a real problem. I was very fit, ready to break 220. I overhydrated, and I struggled. I cramped up all through the race and had chills and I struggled to get to the finish. And I knew I wasn't right. And I remember Fernando had a good race and I thought these nurses ran over. I don't know, can you guys still hear me? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, these nurses ran over to, to catch me. I look, like I was gonna fall and I said, I'm all right, I'm all right. Let me find my teammate, Fernando. And they led me to the medical area and there I saw Fernando laying out on a stretcher. He had run 218, but I looked, said, some fine help, you're gonna be, Fernando. I'm hurting here and you're down on the stretcher. I said, that's my friend. They laid me beside the stretcher, right beside Fernando wrap me up. Um, the chills were awful. And then I heard someone interviewing Fernando. They saw his Boston top. Oh, so you're from Boston? He said, Yeah. They said, What was it like? He said, You know, the only thing I can associate it with is a woman giving birth. And I'm there, Oh my God, Fernando's worse than I, I am. And they said, What do you mean by that? And he said, Well, the pain of labor you hear is so excruciating, but the reward of giving birth outweighs any pain you went through. And I said, if that's the case, I just had a miscarriage. Well, I, They pick the stretcher up, and the next minute, they're walking me to an ambulance. And I can still, to this day, I see these two old ladies looking over me on the stretcher as we're passing through the crowd. And they use the F word, every other word. And one old lady says to the other, after she looks at me, why the fuck do they do it to themselves? Then I panic i that. I must be really bad. And sure enough, I ended up, I had to get my body temperature back up. And so that was a, a learning experience. I yep. learned not to overhydrate. And then in 92, I gave it another go. And I was fortunate to qualify at that time. I, I ended up running under 220. And the the trials went really well. I ended up running under 220 again, 219. And I remember I took the lead at mile 14 Uh and it, it's very strategic. Guys don't want to make a, a move yet. And I'm I'm trying to make the team. You know, I, mm. I have just as good a shot. I thought, you know, take it to that limit. And I gave it a good go and ended up with my second fastest time. And I always remember Frank Shorter was one of the commentators. And he came over to me after the race and he said, you ran with ball. And I always remember him saying that. And that really appreciated that. And I did. I mm-hmm. ran a gutsy race. and. Wasn't afraid to to take it. I'm not there a sightsee. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and you have no regrets, right? I mean, know, yeah, yeah. So, Paul, it's as
2: you
0: uh, and I know then that family, as with all of us, you know, it, you know, at some point we have to put running on the shelf a little bit. You have, move on to career. You were became a went back to school. You're now a massage therapist. You now have you've got two kids. All of us are parents, but you um, have come back to the sport. And before we close up here, I'd love you, I'd love you if you could give us a bit of an update on, on the last couple of years and what brought you back, especially now. You've had nothing to prove. You've had a remarkable career. But what oh, yes. brought you back. What brought you back at this point in life?
1: Well, I had my last hurrah 1996, the 100th running of Boston. I had met my wife-to-be. We were getting married the following month. And she had always heard about my running and all. And I ended up with, the. I was always goal-oriented. For the 100th, I wanted to come in the top 100, break 230. And as it turned out, Paul Hammond was boot. I think, just mentioned it not long ago. He was in the same race. And I ended up battling with Uta Pippig towards the end. And I ended up breaking 230. And I ended up, I think, 84th overall. And it, I got a nice... Uh, from guy morse i ended up first massachusetts finisher for that hundredth so nice. I, it was a great day and then got married had the kids and all and then thought to myself during covid you know i'm gonna really get back into this running i'm sick of wearing a mask at work all day at tooksbury state i stepped up my training decided i'm gonna give the grand prix a chance and so okay. i entered the new england grand prix series through our club uh, Whirl Away. And, uh, a lot of people said I took my forties and fifties off and came back in my sixties here, but I ended up doing well. And I didn't know about the age graded performance thing they have. So I saw that I did well, age graded was the first race comparing my times against the 40 plus year olds. And so my goal, once I, that piqued my interest, I wanted to win the age graded and the over 60 and, uh, the over sixty, I, I was able to to win uh, six of the seven races. The Five k, uh, I got crushed by uh, some runners and ended up fourth in my age group. But I age graded wise, I ended up age grading the tops in that New England Grand Prix series. So it was a really good year. Now I'm enjoying a good rest and uh, enjoying kicking back. Now I'll get back at it again.
2: Wow. I don't see you resting on your laurels, so oh, big boy. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure.
0: Well, I think we've hit the, just about the right moment. We, we, we've captured the arc, and it's been a great one. On behalf of Ron Gluey and John Gorman, I'm Grant Whitney, and we want to thank our guest today, knuckleballer, running, New England running legend, Paul McGovern, for his time spent giving us a, another slice uh, and another look back at what was that marvelous time in the running reunion. Paul McGovern, thank you so much for joining us today on this latest installment of the Runners Reunion podcast. Thank you guys.
3: Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure. Likewise. Thanks so much, Paul.